Welcome to the latest Green Section podcast episode. I'm Adam Miller, the host, USG agronomist, and director of the Green Section Education Program. Ridgewood Country Club Superintendent Todd Rash joins us today to chat about preparations for the US Amateur Championship, talk about the course a little bit, and the behind the scenes look at hosting a USGA championship. Here's the conversation with Todd Rash. Todd, you've got a million things going on right now, uh, so thank you for uh, taking the time to join us during uh, you know what's what's a really hectic time. Um, on top of everything that's involved with hosting a U.S. Amateur, you know it's been really hot, steamy, long stretches of dry weather in New Jersey this year. So you know, off the golf course, how are you and your staff holding up? You know, with all the all the challenges leading up to this year's U.S. Amateur. Well, first, Adam, thanks for having me. It's um, I've been looking forward to this interview. It's uh, I enjoy listening to your podcast. They've been very good. Uh, as far as our staff, we it, you know it's been a little bit of a challenge. I'm not gonna lie. It's uh, it's been a tough summer, and you know it was it started out really good. It was cool, and uh, we were wearing jackets until July one, and then it's been that six last six or seven weeks. It's been it's been a rough one. We're we're very blessed to have a large turf staff this year, bigger than normal. We have eight turf guys, and but they're all whooped. And you know, for the first time ever, I gave them all a, a four-day weekend, and I, they were really appreciative of that. But it wasn't enough, you know. With I, I think we're 27, 28 days now in the 90s, and a lot of those are 97, 98, 99, even a couple hundreds in there. And so they're tired. They're um, they we keep getting promised rain, and it doesn't come. And they're you know the days you know. The hose is out till 6.30 p.m. They've, they've had enough. So we've had a little thread of rain today as we speak, the day before we're getting started. And um, they were all excited. You know, at this point now, you don't really want it. You want to dry out. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's been a rough, but we're, we're doing good. We're excited to host the event. All right, good. And I, I know once, you know, once the flag sticks go in the ground and the T markers are out there, it just gets that much more, uh, more exciting. So um, looking forward to, to that part. As a as a guy from Dayton, Ohio, I know you're paying a little extra attention to Austin Greaser, last year's runner-up from the AM, and just won the Western AM. Um, he's also a Dayton guy. Uh, I thought it was really cool. Um, the USGA social media captured that video of him using that 1930s two iron, I think, from the patio. He hit the flagpole. Tell us a little bit about the backstory uh, with that tradition, or the, the why that was done, and were you there when Austin hit the flagpole? I think whatever on his first or second try. Ironically, when um, Austin was making his run last year at Oakmont, I was actually in Dayton, Ohio, uh, at a family event, and it was you know so I'm reading the Dayton papers. I was really excited about that. It was pretty cool and. I flew home on Sunday morning of the final, and I get home, I turn the television on, and he's up three. And I, I think at the start of the back nine, he's up three on the final nine holes, and ends up losing two and one. And I've always felt kind of guilty that the second I started watching it is when it, things kind of went off the rails a little bit. But, you know, I've followed him since. It's pretty exciting to have a guy from Dayton do that. And he was here a couple weeks ago for the amateur preview, and I got to spend some time with him. He's just a great kid. He's just really cool and I, I you know somewhat surprised I was kind of shocked he won the Western actually you know just I guess this event was four weeks ago and he had told me that he had not played golf in three weeks he was nursing I think he said a wrist injury so he wasn't in great form Ridgewood was the first round he played in the better part of a month and so to see him win the Western was really cool but to get to your question about the flagpole that uh, the story goes and and I've I actually know for a fact that Byron Nelson has confirmed this but when Byron Nelson was a 
a young assistant professional at Ridgewood. He had been practicing hitting three irons over at the driving range, and he came back after he got done. He told a couple caddies, goes, I'm hitting it so well that I could put a ball on this slate and hit that flagpole. And so they bet him, I believe it was 55 cents total, they bet him that he couldn't hit it. And the way, I forget which direction he said it was, but he had been practicing either left to right shots or right to left, but he hit the opposite one for his first shot. And he just missed it. And he said to himself, why am I doing that? I've been practicing whatever it was, let's say left to right. So the next shot he tried to hit left to right and he dinged it on the second try. So we've had a plaque in there for years. A lot of people didn't believe that story, but I I did hear him say once that that story is true. And uh, so we thought it'd be kind of cool to revive that. Uh, Robbie Zalznick was all over that uh, during the preview and uh, it was pretty cool. I was off to the side and wasn't up on the patio at that moment, but off to the side could see it and it was, uh, I, th- I think it, I don't recall if it was his first or second try, but it was one of the two, and it uh, hit it square. It was pretty exciting. Everybody was going nuts. So have you had a chance to try that same shot? Well, I actually have, and that day, the first person to hit the pole was me. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to bring that up, but uh, since you asked, I it took me six tries with a old 1940s three iron, and I'm really not that good, but I somehow managed to, to make it happen. That's that's really cool. It was the first time I ever tried it. I've been here forever, and I've never actually tried the shot, but it was it was cool to do it. Nice, nice. Well, certainly, um, you know, it's exciting to think about the actual players and, and that part of it. For those that aren't familiar with Ridgewood, can you give a quick overview of sort of the composite routing? You know, your 27 holes there. Um, but, you know, talk to us a little bit about the composite routing and then the grasses that you're maintaining on greens and fairways in particular. So Ridgewood has three nines, and unlike a lot of 27-hole golf courses, there's no real best 18 holes. They're all equally good. You know, the center course is a tad shorter, but that's only because it has a 280-yard par 4 on it. But they all play great. There's all awesome holes in all three. And so over the years, we've played tournaments, championships on all three, on combinations of all three. The LPGA has played east and center. The the right, uh, excuse me. The U.S. Amateur in '74 played East-West. We, the Senior PGA, played a, a composite course that was different to this one. After we played that event in 2001, as we were looking at other combinations, we knew there were holes that were just not. There were great holes that were being left out of the golf course, and so, uh, in conjunction with David Reisner, our golf pro, and John Much and Peter Mealy, the PGA Tour, we figured out a, a routing that was much more difficult. It was also included every great hole at Ridgewood. There wasn't a single absentee hole. And what was really, you know, so we had a great golf course, but what also happened was it logistically opened up the entire middle part of the property. With bigger championships, hospitality could move around, TV could move around, crowds could move around. It was just, it was not nearly as compact. It opened up all kinds of opportunities. Uh, We've stuck with that for you know, we did the girls junior on that with a, a slightly different routing of holes, but the exact same holes. Uh, and then the uh, Northern Trust in 2018 played that the same course that we're going to play next week for the U.S. Amateur. How far in advance have you and the team been preparing the course, you know, for the week of the championship? And have there been any surprises really over that time that you've learned? 
So we found out about, I'd say four years ago that we were going to get this event and no sooner did we find out I was up late one night working on a budget right from, from I think it was the night we signed the contract. I was so excited to host it. But uh, we had had an inkling of an idea towards this latter half of the week during the Girls Junior in 2016 that this was a possibility. We had been talking to some of the executives and it, it definitely seemed like a possibility. So we had a couple years of kind of working that out and I think it was 20... 18 where we kind of closed the deal you know for the most part it was put on hold for a couple years and did some fundraising and things like that but for for the most part outside of budgeting our whole fo- it's been about a year's focus for us you know really from September 1 last year every decision we've made has been about the U.S. Amateur you know we haven't done a whole lot different in in terms of, of course setup and, and things like that. Obviously there's a lot of changes to the rough. We don't spend a lot of time protecting our rough throughout the season. We might make some basic summer patch apps around the green banks or tea banks, bunker banks, but uh, we protected most of the rough this season, not only for summer patch and dollar spot, but also looking at, uh, you know, the, the weather's been so brutal. We, we went after Pythium as well on a couple occasions. Obviously there's a little more fertilizer, trying to get the rough thick and, and grow it out a little bit. Another thing we do every, you know, every time a championship comes around is about three weeks out, we start taking out 100 ball mark scars a day out of the greens. Everybody's assigned a green, and, you know, that takes the, right up until yesterday, actually, which is, you know, a couple of days before the event to get all of those out, and you're, you're adding fresh ones every day, too. So and then by this time of you know, year, the, the greens are tired, and so there's a lot of scarring. And, but uh, we try to present a, a fresh surface at the start of the week. It'll get beat up over the course of the week. We're not going to worry about it, but we try to give it a fresh. But that, that's kind of the only things we do out of, out of norm uh, for us. Uh, uh, we're usually pretty much ready to go otherwise. As far as your, uh, your question about surprises... Nothing really, but I, I, I would add this. I, I think one surprise to me that goes, it's not just this year with the U.S. Amateur, but goes back to 2016 to the, to the girls' junior we hosted was, and I'm not trying to blow smoke, but how great it has been to work with the USGA. And I really do mean that. I've been blessed to do four championships with the PJ Tour, one with the PJ of America, and they were great. I loved working with Kerry Haig and Dennis Ingram and Chuck. Uh, Chuck Green and guys like that from the tour and but across the board you know I, I, th- I think I had a misconception about the USGA that a lot of people share which is they're you guys are too by the book and wearing your blue jackets and your white coats and or your your white shirts and your blue jackets and you know occasionally making a setup mistake and and instead what I have found is a very dedicated crew who are just awesome people, fun to hang around, enjoy a good transfusion at the end of the day, and uh, I've enjoyed, I've really enjoyed it. The girls junior up to this point was as crazy as it may sound, you know, because it wasn't Tiger Woods or Jack Nicholas or Arnold Palmer who've all played at Ridgewood during my tenure. That was my favorite event, and it wasn't just the fact that it was the girls were so appreciative to play a place like Ridgewood, but it was really the people I was working with for, you know, two years, really. That has been a big surprise to me. It's changed my way of thinking about the USJ. It's been just a phenomenal experience. Well, I appreciate you saying that, you know, on behalf of the USGA. I'm sure we, we did not put you up to, <laughs> up to say that, so thanks. Speaking of something that, that is, you know, really paramount to a successful championship is, 
is really the maintenance team. You and I know we couldn't do the things that we need to get done, you know, in a short time period in the morning before play starts without uh, your staff and the team of volunteers you're bringing in. So uh, how many volunteers are you expecting and and how many total are going to be there each morning to sort of complement your regular staff? We have 35 on staff, including me over 27 holes, we will probably have between 30 and 35, maybe 40 people each morning. In the middle of the week, we have a few extra each day. That's much lower than we normally have. You know, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. First of all, we're all struggling with staff. It's it's difficult. Even some of the biggest names, top 10 golf courses, who were happy in the spring to, oh yeah, I'll send you two guys. And you know, they've struggled to make that happen. And I understand that. We're all struggling for staff. And it's been a crazy, difficult summer throughout the metropolitan area. And, and I don't begrudge anybody who doesn't feel like they can't send somebody this year. You know, there's also a, I think there's a little bit of a Ridgewood fatigue. This is the seventh time I've asked for volunteers in the last 21 years. I also think as amazing as the U.S. Amateur is, and it's the oldest championship in golf, it's also not Jack Nicholas. It's the next Jack Nicholas or the next Tiger Woods. You know, no, a lot of people in just mainstream golf don't know who these kids are. They're pretty amazing. I've probably seen seven or eight top 15 world amateur ranked kids come through here in the last three weeks to play some practice rounds, and they're incredible. I mean, it's truly amazing golf, but they're not household names yet. So I, I don't think, you know, there's a you know, that's a bit of an issue. And I, I think finally, too, in New, you know, the metropolitan area, particularly in New Jersey, there's just a lot of competition for volunteers. We're up against a, a FedEx Cup event uh, two hours south of us where a lot of South Jersey guys are going. There was an LPGA event and a live event two weeks ago in the area. And both of those events are it's my same friend set and we're all drawn from the same group of people. So the volunteer effort has been a little bit difficult this year, but uh, we've, we've slimmed down the, the maintenance scheduling a bit and got rid of some of the luxuries like light towers and things like that. And it's all gonna be good. We're still gonna produce a, a phenomenal product. So something that's also been obviously extremely difficult for, for every golf course that I've talked to, probably every golf course out there, uh, in addition to labor, has been the supply chain issues. So um, have those issues impacted preparations for the championship or, or course maintenance in general leading up to the event? A little bit. I wouldn't say it's a huge problem. Uh, some of it comes on our hospitality end. We, we haven't been able to get all our deliveries yet for some of the giveaways we're, we're going to give, and we're going to make up for that with uh, some gift certificates in the golf shop. I think there, there's a, a couple fertilizer issues that we've had. Uh, I'm a big proponent of MKP in the summer, and uh, there's just been a worldwide shortage of that. So we've had to, but we are expecting that to be a problem in 23, so we're rationing it. So we're not using as much as I would like to use. So and we've had a few issues like that, but it, it hasn't been crazy. Uh, are there anything extra maintenance-wise that you'll add to the championship you know, during, uh, you know, during each morning or evening? that you wouldn't do otherwise? Obviously we're mowing more. We don't mow fairways every day. We don't, we don't mow tee to fairway step cuts every day. We're just because of manpower, we're gonna mow tees at night. And consequently, we're gonna take a tennis brush and, and have one guy go around and drag the dew on the morning on the tees. So that, that is new for us. We, well, it's not new. We did, actually did it in 2018, but we, uh, it's not normally we would mow tees in the morning. So, you know, obviously we don't rake bunkers every day at Ridgewood. We do it every two days or so and so you know you just kind of it's like a member guest every day you know and it's a, a much bigger member guest let's say so 
What about, you know, thinking, you know, around the, the some of the bigger PGA Tour events that you've had, you know, has there been a different feel leading up to it or something that you've been, you know, maybe more excited about, you know, like grandstands are, they really make the course, you know, give you a different vantage point, but you've experienced the, the aftermath of grandstands. So are you, are you going to miss those at all? I do enjoy watching the build out for bigger championships in terms of people and hospitality. That doesn't really affect me that, or our staff, we spend 30 minutes with each structure, helping them lay out and avoiding heads and things like that. But afterwards we're done. When they leave town, I pay a contractor or the tour pays a contractor to repair all that. So we just have to water it. So it's not a lot of effort or stress on our, our end. I would say hosting this event or the girls junior is just as stressful as hosting those other events or you know there's just a lot of going on there's a lot of organization there's trying to make the course perfect trying to just trying to peak in august is difficult so those things haven't changed at all I, yesterday was a you know we're in the final days we're closed there's people running all over this property right now with television and tents and all kinds of coke vendors and all kinds of stuff and you know i was putting out fires all day long yesterday and i was driving along at one point and i said you know this is no different than the tour event this is exactly what i do two days before a tour event is put out fires all day it's just the same thing so even though it's a different uh type of an event and there's less people it still still feels very much like uh, a big time pga tour event let's talk about the course itself a little bit more um the club has worked with gil hance on a master plan for, I think, more than 25 years or so. Have there been any notable projects that, that you've done recently to the course that uh, maybe folks haven't seen since, uh, since you know, 2018, since the last big event? Outside of, it, it, no is the answer to that question. We, outside of some T work, and, you know, we've added a few four or five T's since then. And we actually do have a big project coming up with Gil in two weeks. But I, first, I would just want to say I love Gil Hance. He is just such a great human being. He's so humble. He's great to talk to. I consider him a good friend. And he started here building a short game area for us in 20, or 1995. And I was assistant that year. And that's when I met him. And we, when I, a couple years later, I became the superintendent here. And the club wanted an architect for, uh, for a master plan. I encouraged the club you know, to do a master plan. And we ended up hiring Gil, and you know it's just been a great relationship. Uh, little known fact, he's actually an honorary member at Ridgewood now. That's how much we love him here at Ridgewood. And he's just, he's, one thing I love is, I, I actually wanted to be a golf course architect. I, I love architecture, I'm an architecture geek, and you know that was my dream, but back in college, I had no idea how you'd do that. I just, I didn't, I didn't quite get, you know, it's a little more obvious how you get to that place and the position in life now than it was in you know the late 80s early 90s and one thing Gil has allowed me to do is he doesn't care where a good idea comes from he has no he is so humble he he has allowed me to suggest dozens of things over the years and has said yep that's a good idea let's do it and so I've gotten to play kind of mini architect over the years here and there and make suggestions and sometimes he shoots them down not all most of the time he doesn't most of the time he says yeah let's let's do it and so that's been a lot of fun to you know really be a collaboration with them and not just okay here's your plan Todd go do it so we've been we've enjoyed that but anyways back to your original question 
he is taking that original short game area that we built 27 or 8 years ago and we're blowing that thing up about a week after the amateur and he's going to just redo the whole thing and turn it into a kind of a mini five hole practice area that somehow way shape or form is going to play as a little mini par three course. So we're pretty excited about that. Uh, should be done in early October and hopefully get it open by Memorial Day next year. That sounds really fun. A big part of, I think, what you guys have done and been successful with and certainly been an, an example to a lot of other courses in the area has been, you know, with your tree management program. And, you know, I think tree management in general is always something that's ongoing. Um, I would describe you guys as still a, a Parkland-style course, and you still have a lot of large trees throughout the property. Um, but you've been able to restore sight lines and angles and just sort of, you know, decluttered the property a bit. So I wanted to ask, you know, what have been the keys to success with your tree management program, sort of both getting it implemented and, you know, continuing on that, that path to managing the trees on the golf course? Like most courses, before you start a tree program, trees are revered by almost every club in America and are kind of put on a pedestal and are seen as untouchable. I had a difficult time early in my career, which would have been the late 90s as superintendent, getting trees down. But something happened that turned out to be a complete blessing in disguise. After the senior PGA in 2001, and actually it happened during the week of the event, we got anthracnose on our greens. And by end of July, the greens were pretty much wiped out. It was just the most awful time. You know, honestly, I, I wasn't sure I was going to keep my job through all that. That really was the best thing to ever happen to Ridgewood Country Club as far as I'm concerned because it set us on a path to... Gil had just started his first master plan and he talked about tree work and it wasn't getting a whole lot of traction. But that experience with Anthracnos accelerated tree work and within six months of that happening, we had 1,300 trees down around our greens. That started something that has continues to go to this day. Now, we, as you said, we're a Parkland golf course and trees are part of our culture. We're not looking to turn into Oakmont. We want to have trees here, but we want to have them in the right places that don't overly affect turf health or don't affect playability in the wrong way and are safe in the proper varieties. And we're planting trees too, but obviously we've taken down a lot more. I mean, we're talking 6,000 trees later. Uh, I will say 500 of those came down in a tornado. But on two fronts, I think having the anthracnose scare of 2001 really got us going. It got, you know, it started the conversation. It gave us opportunity to make some things happen quickly. And then one thing I quickly have learned over the years is tree work is the best way to get it done for me and I've encouraged others is to be patient. Eventually, I don't think there's a tree that we I, we have not gotten down that I wanted down at some point. It may have taken us five years to get it down, but we get it down. I've learned to be very patient. Now, that's easy to say 20 years later, but you know people don't want to wait that long. But I think the membership has been very, very good about tree work because we haven't gone crazy. For the most part, it's been a very steady progression, just constant improvement over the years. People, we might take out 25 trees over a winter and people know something's different, but they don't quite get it. You know, if you remember remove an entire hole of trees, they're going to know it. But we have removed entire holes of trees for the most part, but it took us six or seven years to get there. So they kind of slowly evolved and the members kind of eased into it. 
overall, our, our, I think our membership gets it. As you said, the sight lines have been vastly improved. We have this incredible land at Ridgewood, and you can never see it. You just saw the whole Iran before, and we had, I don't know, nine or ten internal woods, and you couldn't see through any of those, and they're all gone. There's 14 or 15 trees in every one of these woods now with, you know, it's all fescued underneath, and it's just had these great vistas, and you know, obviously the airflow has improved, and sunlight, and the turf is so much healthier. So it's been a long stretch of progress, but uh, it's been worth the wait. One of the neat things that <clears throat> I've had the, the luxury of being able to visit Ridgewood and we worked together in 2016 for the girls junior, but anytime you, you roll into the maintenance shop, you know, the, the eye-catching things that you see right away are those old hanging scoreboard headers and the banners, you know, that are on the maintenance, different maintenance buildings from all the different tournaments you've hosted um, and we'll have that video that, that you did with us. I appreciate that. Uh, sort of talking about uh, those uh, those banners that it sounds like it, it really all started when you discovered the 1935 Ryder Cup scoreboard. So can you talk a little bit about the story uh, around the, the scoreboard headers and how that tradition developed? Adam, it actually started uh, uh, with the U.S. Amateur in 1974. That's the first sign that we that was hung here well before my time. And it continued with the 90 Senior Open. So the first two events were actually USGA events. And when I came here, those were the two signs here. And the next one that put up was in 2005, we were building a new maintenance facility. And demolition contractor was supposed to show up the first Monday after the new year. And he didn't show up in time. And we were kind of, we were in a real push to get the uh, foundation in before winter truly set in. So my uh you know him dave zollinger my kind of go-to guy here he just took it upon himself to get in the excavator and start knocking down the old building it wasn't real difficult the thing had been there since 1929 and was falling apart but he took that excavator and started ripping through the building the old one and we had this attic it's just a little attic we would stand on a step stool and throw stuff light bulbs up there i think is what was stored up there and when he grabbed into that flooring, because no one was ever actually up there, you just kind of reached up and grabbed the lights, and he pulls through the flooring and sees this sign. It says the 19, I'm looking at it right now. It says the International Ryder Cup matches September 28th through 29th. And he immediately knew what it was. Now, imagine if the demo guy had shown up. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so we found this great piece of history, and. Dave was all excited. I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was just unbelievable to have this sign. And so that really started us off. We, you know, it was the first one I, we hung up during my tenure and we got that up. And obviously then we had a nice run of events and I guess I, I, I skipped one, the 2001 senior PGA. That was pretty cool. Tom Watson won that event. And then we've had the four tour events and uh, now our second USGA event in the last six years. So they, they've built up pretty quickly in the last 14 years or so. And it's, um, it's uh, we're we're running out of room, but we've got a, we've got a couple spaces left for for uh, future championships. It's it's a cool. A lot of people comment on it when they they come here. It's really cool. Yeah, really unique feature. So always like to see it. You're starting, I think, your 28th year now as superintendent at Ridgewood. You know, super competitive market in New Jersey. Um, you know, I think you're probably one of the longest tenured superintendents really in the area. Um, so I wanted to you know pick your brain on what you think it. It, it is, uh, you know, what are the keys to really having that long-term success as a superintendent um, at a course like Ridgewood? You know, Adam, I, I've 
listen to many of your podcasts, and I'm not sure you want, I could write a book on this answer because I've thought about it many, many times. So I'm not sure your show is long enough for, uh, for me to tell you everything, <laughs> but I'll give you a couple of highlights. First of all, I think Ridgewood is very employee friendly. And again, I'm not trying to grease anybody, but I think anyone who's objective, who works here, gets that, that, you know, there's always tension once in a while between employee and, you know, employer. But overall, this club treats its employees really well. We have a, I'm not the only long tenured employer. I have two people on my staff who've been here 35, 40 years. We have a locker room guy who has been here for 40 plus and is, you know, he's been here since he was a teenager. And... I don't know what it probably is. If you took our golf pro, our manager, our controller, and myself, you know, the core team here, you know, I think there's 90 or 95 years of experience there just at Ridgewood. I think employees are pretty comfortable here. There's a lot of advantages to staying here. We drain really well. I'm not sure that was always the case, but we, we have done enough work that we drain well. I don't answer to a general manager. You know, I direct, I answer directly to the board, and that is very, very important to me that the message of greens and grounds and the my you know, I love to talk about the golf course and I want the message not to be a, a game of telephone where it gets changed every time it hits another layer. I love that I can speak directly to the board of directors. That's very important to me and it's one of the biggest reasons I've never considered leaving here, you know, in any serious fashion. Um, you know, I, I mentioned Dave Zollinger. This guy is the Mr. Go-To. He's, I, I couldn't go, f- I'd have a problem going out and fixing an irrigation leak here right now because I never have to. I mean, this guy can build a house. He can repair the car. He's my electrician. He's the plumber. You know, he, he can do it all. And so I've, I have this amazing staff. So a lot of those things have led to, you know, all the you know, reasons why I've never thought about leaving. But the other side of that is, I think I've also lasted this long for one big reason, and that is through good communication. I think it's a key feature that is missing and lacking in some superintendents. And I, you know, I preach this all the time to my guys is how important it is to be seen and to be heard and to not just get caught up in our 200 acre bubble outside of the clubhouse, but make it into the clubhouse once in a while. And I didn't always see it that way. I was very, you know, I was a really hard worker and you know, doing my job and doing it well, but you know, I think I was a superintendent two or three years, and the president of the club came to me at the time and said, Todd, you know, the board thinks you're great, and we all know you, and we love you, but the membership doesn't know you at all. It's like, you need to, you know, we want you to come to the patio every Saturday and Sunday morning, and I did that religiously for 10 years for both days of the weekends, and, you know, and I still do it on Saturday mornings. I've gotten a little bit of a life here in the last decade and decide I want to take Sundays off. I, I really do believe that, that that two-year period where I really put myself out there between 1999 and 2001 actually saved my job during Anthracnos and that I had built up a, a level of faith with the membership. You know, I could get us out of this issue. We write a lot at, at Greens and Grounds. So, you know, we have a pretty active social media and you know, any opportunity can find to just talk to the members, we try to do. So I think that's a big key that everyone should, you know, should be focused on is, you know, not just producing great turf, but communicating your message to the membership. Fantastic advice. I want to get you out of here with, uh, you know, a kind of a fun question here. Some great holes, obviously, out on your property laid out by uh, Tillinghast in 1929. 
so do you have a favorite hole in the championship routing and what hole are you most excited to watch during the am it's okay if they're they're two different holes <laughs> i think that answer for most everybody is the 12th hole which is six center it's a short drivable par four some people might say 14 which is uh as lee trevino described the green looks like a pretzel uh, very unique green design. That's never been my favorite hole here. And for many, many years, I said it was five east, which will be number five in the championship. It has a great green complex. But in recent years, I get asked this question all the time, actually. So in recent years, I've really come around to seven east, which is seven. It's a longish uh, 485, 490 yard par four. And we have just made so many changes, not changes as much as restoration to really bringing back the hole to the width and getting the bunkers in the right spot. And a lot of tree work has happened on that hole and fescuing and green expansions. And it just goes on and on. We've really maximized the potential of that hole with you know what Gil, the work Gil has had. And to watch that evolve and turn into one of the most difficult holes again, is it's just been fun to see that transition. So that's without question my favorite hole. I might agree that number 12, six center is the best hole to watch. Who doesn't like a drivable par four? And, and so it'll be fun to see how the kids play that next week. Yeah, two great holes to, to pay attention to, 7 and 12. They're going to go for it on 12, no, no doubt. I don't, <laughs> it seems like these, uh, these guys are fearless. So it'll be, it'll be exciting. Really appreciate you taking the time. I know you've got so much going on. So uh, I'll let you get out of here with that. But again, thanks again, Todd. It's been awesome. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for listening to the USGA Green Section podcast. Be sure to subscribe, listen, and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also keep up with the latest content on Twitter and by subscribing to the Green Section Record, our digital publication that's published twice a month.